Coming up on Tech Nation, you probably don't know this, but next week is the International Biotech Convention. It will be held in person for the first time in three years. And we thought it would be a good idea for you to know that biotech, having quickly pivoted to build COVID vaccines, COVID treatments, and rapid COVID tests, is now back at work doing what it always does, fighting cancer, healing wounds, and more. Today, I'll speak with three biotech innovators about their unprecedented work, all being tested right now in clinical trials. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with Harvard psychology professor Mazarin Banerjee about her book, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases in Good People. Don't think you have any hidden biases? Hint, they're hidden. Professor Banerjee credits her interest in biased research to the work of Yale professor Marsha Johnson, who measured unconscious bias in people suffering from amnesia. It's exactly work like that that got me interested in this topic. Uh, I did not come to the study of unconscious bias by worrying about things like race and gender and so on. I was busy as a graduate student studying human memory. And when I was uh, in the early 1980s doing that kind of work, a little revolution was happening in the field of memory. People had begun to discover that for a hundred years, psychologists had measured memory by simply asking people to report back on some prior episode. They would say, you know, can you remember where you lived when you were five years old? Or what did you eat for breakfast? All of these are very conscious, deliberate ways of reaching back into our minds to pull out some information from the past. And Amnesic patients really don't have any of it um, in, in different forms. Uh, the severely amnesic ones really can't even remember the face of a doctor that they might see uh, every day. Um, and, and yet they seemed to remember certain things. And that was, for me, a revelation because if that was the case, not only in amnesic patients but later shown to be true in all of us, um, then what would that say for how we go about remembering our attitudes? Do I even know what my preference is? Uh, maybe I don't know what it is. And that, that was, so Marsha Johnson's study was one of, of, of several studies that got us thinking about uh, how you can both know and not know something in the same mind. So here's what she does that's so interesting. She gave people amnesic patients and then a control sample of people who had more intact memory. Uh, she gives them faces of people to look at, and with each face, she presents a little description of this person. This person was in the Naval Academy and received an award, or this person was in the Air Force and, and had to be dishonorably discharged. Let's just take those two as examples. Well, later, when you ask amnesic patients, tell me, when you look at this face, can you tell me anything about this person? They would say, absolutely not. I don't even remember seeing this face before. And yet, if you said to them, look at this face and tell me, is this person a good person? 
or is this person a bad person? And it turns out that with close to 100% accuracy, if you had said awarded a medal for, some, for, for, for bravery versus dishonorably discharged, they would, with close to 100% accuracy, say good or bad accurately. Now, that meant that something did remain in their minds, and it was an important piece of information. It was whether to remember that this was somebody to approach or avoid in the future, even though they had zero recollection for the face. You ask yourself, why at the end of a 30-minute interview do I love this person so much? Or why do I find myself being agitated by this person? And you might ask yourself if something that happened in the first few moments set you up on a path whereby all you're doing is simply reinforcing the first impression that you had formed. And at the end of 30 minutes, all you've done is made sure that you have evidence for that very first feeling that you had. This archive Technation interview features Harvard professor Mazarin Banerjee and her book, Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. Professor Banerjee continues to study thinking and feeling as they unfold in social contexts with a focus on mental systems that operate in implicit or unconscious mode. Her courses include The Nature of Prejudice and the Social Mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, after a pivot to create COVID vaccines, treatments, and tests, biotech is back working on what it does best. Dr. Robert Eng from Vore Biopharma will talk about Vore's unique approach to a particular kind of cancer, acute myeloid leukemia, perhaps better known to you as AML. Then Dr. Nick Sopko from Polarity TE talks about wound healing, from burns to chronically infected areas and more. Their first treatment candidate with the FDA, severe diabetic foot ulcers. And Dr. Eric Vivier from Innate Pharma in Marseille, Innate's work represents the next wave of immuno-oncology treatments harnessing natural killer cells. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Robert Eng. Well, Robert, welcome to Biotech Nation. Thank you very much, Moria. It's a privilege to be here. Now, today we're going to talk about a particular kind of cancer, acute myeloid leukemia, AML for short. What is it? Who gets it? And how prevalent is it? Yeah. So AML, acute myeloid leukemia, is a uh, blood cancer, therefore leukemia, and it affects uh, something called the myeloid compartment. Now, the myeloid compartment is actually the bone marrow. You know, in, in our bone marrow, we produce cells that we need in our circulation. And so acute myeloid leukemia is where you get disease of this bone marrow that causes uh, the bone marrow to be taken over 
by these blast cells, these cancerous cells. Now, AML happens across all ages. It tends to be more common as you get older. So a lot of patients are in their 50s, 60s, or even older. And uh, it's actually very common. It's actually the most common acute leukemia in adults. What is it like when you have it? What is that experience? Yeah, you know, a lot of patients, when they uh, get AML, they don't know they have cancer. In fact, a lot of the symptoms are pretty nonspecific. So, for example, they could feel weak. Uh, maybe they get easy bruising. They get out of breath. And what it's due to is, in fact, that this cancer is slowly taking over their bone marrow. And, in fact, it's squeezing out the healthy cells such that regular cells that you need for survival, like immune cells or, or platelets that clot your blood, or even simple red blood cells that carry oxygen, are squeezed out and, and your body tends to start dysfunctioning. And so that's really how you can tell. And then your doctor would take your blood, they would also take a sample of your bone marrow, and they would discover these AML blast cells uh, sitting in there. Now, if nothing is done, how long can this go on? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of AML is very aggressive. And when simply these healthy cells are squeezed out of the bone marrow, that is not compatible with survival. These cells end up taking up all the space and all the nutrients that are needed to produce normal, healthy blood cells that you know, you'll need to carry oxygen around your body or to uh, have important immune functions. And unfortunately, you really only have months of survival in some cases. And so the prognosis is actually pretty dismal without therapy. Well, Dr. Ang, uh, today, how is it treated? I mean, what is what we call the standard of care for someone with AML? Yeah, so uh, in fact, the standard of care for AML was established back in the 60s and 70s. And chemotherapy is, is, is a dirty word in a lot of circumstances. However, in AML, chemotherapy is generally very beneficial. And there's a, a chemotherapy regimen called 7 plus 3 chemo based on the number of days that you receive it. And 7 plus 3 chemo is actually very effective at knocking down this cancer in roughly 70 to 80% of patients. There's a couple of caveats to that. Firstly, some patients may have other complications or, or the disease may be severe enough that chemo doesn't work. But probably the more important complication is that even though the chemo is initially effective at knocking down their cancer, if you were to stop the chemo, the cancer would aggressively return. And what happens is that these cancer cells end up hiding out in little niches in the bone marrow. And so chemotherapy, as well as radiation, which is sometimes used, just can't touch it. And uh, the moment you stop therapy, the cancer returns. And so Another thing that's done that was actually revolutionized uh, back in the 70s was this bone marrow replacement, that you could actually take healthy marrow from an individual that is matched to your own blood and replace your diseased cancerous marrow with this healthy marrow. What you need to do there is you need to actually clear out the bone marrow of your diseased cells, and they can use high-strength chemotherapy or, or radiation to do that, and then you can replace the bone marrow with these healthy cells from a, a healthy donor. That could be a relative, like a, a sibling or a child, 
or, or it could be a, a stranger that happens to be matched to you. And that's really a revolution that, that someone else's cells can reside in you for forever, basically, and replace your diseased cells. And so that was quite a revolution. And that is called an allogeneic stem cell transplant. How effective is that? Allogeneic stem cell transplants are effective in some people. And in fact, it's curative because you're using this high strength chemo to clear out the cancer and replace, uh, you know, these healthy cells. And so roughly about half the time, it is uh, very effective and, and even curative. Unfortunately, in the other half of patients, that is not the case. And you end up getting recurrence of this cancer, despite all the trouble of going through this uh, stem cell transplant. Well, now the important question. What is CD33? Ah, CD33 is actually a molecule that sits on the cell surface of cancer cells. And uh, in fact, in 95% of AML patients, their AML cells express this protein called CD33. Think of it like a little flag. And we're looking for all the cells with a red flag on the surface. And this red flag is CD33. And so if you were to kill anything that has this red flag, it would kill all the cancer cells. There's a problem with that, though. There's a lot of healthy cells in your body that also have the same red flag, the CD33 molecule. And in fact, if you end up doing that and killing all cells that express CD33, you also kill healthy bone marrow cells. You can become very sick or you can even die from killing all of these cells with that same flag. And so CD33 is known to be a very good marker of cancer cells, of AML cells, but unfortunately it's inherently flawed because of its expression on healthy cells. Okay, so what do you do? So, you know, people really struggled with this. A lot of people have tried different ways of targeting that molecule, but it doesn't solve the issue at all. And so what we're doing at VOR is really a fundamental shift. What we're doing is we are taking the bone marrow cells that would be given to the patient, but ahead of that time, we're processing it and we're genetically modifying these cells to remove this CD33 molecule, to essentially remove this red flag. And so now the patient is receiving a new bone marrow that doesn't have the red flag at all. And anything left in the patient that is waving this red flag should be cancer cells. So what we're actually doing is making this CD33 target much more cancer specific. And so you can then give treatments after the stem cell transplant, and hopefully the patient will be much more healthy because they wouldn't get this toxicity from uh, these treatments. And these treatments can really solely pursue cancer because anything expressing that, that this target uh, will be cancer cells. Can you tell before the transplant whether or not that they've got any CD33 left or cancer-producing cells left in their body after getting the big chemo or radiation, whatever it was, to clean out? Can you tell what that somebody has that left in them? Yeah, in fact, um, you can. So routinely after a stem cell transplant, you take samples of the bone marrow and you can tell from expression of this CD33 marker 
or other markers if there's any residual cancer left. This is actually a test uh, called MRD, minimal residual disease. And you can actually either see cancer cells directly or you can look for these molecular flags to detect if the cancer is still present. And so in our circumstance, hopefully those marrow samples would contain a lot of healthy cells that no longer show this red flag and hopefully no evidence of that cancer left. Well, if we're producing, if healthy people are producing CD33 and other parts of their body, don't we need it for something? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Maria, because, you know, maybe God put it there for a reason. Now, our experimentation shows that actually it seems to be biologically dispensable, meaning that if you remove expression of this CD33, uh, you can retain solid function of these stem cells. Uh, you can produce all the blood cells that you need for survival. And these blood cells seem to function completely normally. Now, in addition to all these experiments, we also looked at human genetics. And there's some big genetic databases showing that there are individuals walking among us who have never, ever expressed CD33 in their entire lives. They just happen to have mutations that prevent its expression. And that's really interesting. So it shows whatever CD33 is there for, it seems that you can do without it. Now you can test in humans. You've gotten the go-ahead from the FDA. You're in the very first phase, phase one. What's your plan for this phase one trial? Yeah. So what we're offering patients are two things. Firstly, we're offering patients this next generation bone marrow transplant. Uh, where we are genetically modifying these cells to remove this red flag, the CD33. And so patients are undergoing a transplant procedure that they would have undergone anyway, except they're receiving our cells instead of a regular stem cell transplant. The second thing we're offering patients in the same study is patients are being treated 60 days after their transplant with a drug called Marlatag. This drug Marlatag is designed to attack anything with this red flag, anything showing CD33. And normally you'd never give Marlatag, in fact, you'd never give any type of anti-cancer agent after the transplant because the transplant is still fragile and it could die or be, be severely damaged as a result of these drugs. In this case, we believe this new transplant will be robust because of this genetic modification we're providing. And so the benefit that we're hoping to uh, provide patients is that this next generation transplant will allow this kind of therapy soon after their transplant and prevent or extremely delay any type of relapse of their cancer. And I should say Malatag is actually already a marketed agent. It's, uh, it's marketed by Pfizer and it's used for AML right now. And it's very well understood. In fact, you know, tens of thousands of patients have received this. And uh, we think, however, this new use of Malatag in the post-transplant period could be extremely beneficial to patients. Well, here's the important part. You're enrolling now, and you're actually going to be enrolling in other studies for AML. Can you tell people how they can find out about it and what it would take to participate, et cetera? Yes, so uh, our study is, is open for enrollment in multiple centers all throughout the United States. This is open for patients with AML, 
And what we're doing here is actually selecting the highest risk patients who are very likely to relapse after their cancer. And so the easiest way to find out about this is go to our website. So our company is called Vorbio. So go to V for Victor, V-O-R-B-I-O.com. So vorbio.com, and there's a special page on that website just for patients that they can learn more about the study and if they might be eligible. And they can also see all the different clinical trial sites throughout the U.S. and which one might be closest to them. Well, Dr. Ang, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you come back and, and see us again. Well, thank you, Maura. I hope to come back with great results from patients who uh, can receive our next generation therapies and we can hopefully change the lives of some people out there. Dr. Robert Ang is the president and CEO of Vor Biopharma. That's Vor, V-O-R, on the web at vorbiopharma.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. There are many kind of skin wounds that have trouble healing, whether due to accidents or as a result of a medical condition or simply attributable to old age. Polarity TE's first candidate in clinical trials is severe diabetic foot ulcers. Dr. Nick Sopko is Polarity TE's chief scientific officer. Well, Nick, welcome back to Biotech Nation. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, actually, it's welcome back to your company, Polarity TE. Uh, and you're the first time I've, I've interviewed you, so well, just welcome to you. Just a plain old welcome. Now, you and I spoke earlier, and it seems that the best description of what Polarity TE focuses on is wound healing. Now, I feel like there's a number of different kinds of wounds. What are you talking about with respect to wound healing? Yeah, so we're uh, really focusing on some of these challenging wounds uh, that are very difficult to heal. Uh, our skin obviously has a lot of potential to heal ourselves. As we all know, we scrape ourselves and cut ourselves over a thousand times in our lifetime. And most of the time our skin is able to, to heal that. But uh, sometimes when you have these larger or more severe wounds, such as burn wounds, industrial wounds, or these uh, severe chronic ulcers like diabetic foot ulcers and venous leg ulcers that often occur in the elderly, our skin is just uh, oftentimes sort of overwhelmed and those repair mechanisms are unable to heal those wounds. And so what uh, the goal of our therapy is to be able to aid our skin and uh, be able to close these uh, challenging wounds that often can be very dangerous for people. Now, what do all these wound types have in common and what can be done for them as of today? Yeah, so um, probably one of the biggest things they have in common is that you know there is just a, a large defect in the skin. And um, the skin, um, either due to the size or the depth or uh, the wound biology, is unable to uh, completely close those wounds before things like infection or the wound dries out and the tissue gets damaged underneath. And so a lot of current therapies, especially for these really challenging wounds, actually require very in-depth surgeries um, you know, with plastic surgeons and operating rooms. Uh, where they're basically taking another piece of uh, a large piece of skin somewhere else on your body or nearby and kind of trying to swing it over, if you will, to close these wounds or something like a split thickness skin graft, where they're literally shaving off the top part of your skin somewhere else on your body and then trying to get just uh, that top coverage over that wound type. And now let's talk about the treatment that Polarity TE is working on. Before we do that, let me be clear. 
you're already in phase three trials. So we've seen some success already, and I know that you're working very closely with the FDA on this. So let's talk about this treatment. You call it Skin TE. I guess all the products from Polarity TE will have TE after them. Um, And so let's say I have a skin wound of some type. What's the idea? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, looking at the skin and understanding the skin has a lot of lot of regenerative potential already within it. Um, Our technology, we designed it to uh, focus on being able to leverage what our skin can already do, but apply it to wounds that our skin simply hasn't evolved to heal. And so how we do that is we actually take a small piece of healthy skin somewhere else on the patient. So this is skin that's uninjured, uh, about the size of a quarter or so, so not very large. Uh, And then that gets sent uh, to our facility where we manufacture it into sort of a, a paste-like consistency. And in that paste, it contains uh, not only all the cells that are already within our skin, but they're in an approved format for wound healing. And it also includes sort of the structural elements of skin that are also very important. Our skin obviously has cells as part of it, but as we know, we can sort of pinch it, it's flexible, it's tough. And a lot of those physical properties are also due to this, this sort of you know uh, structural elements of the skin. And then uh, this paste gets sent back to the provider, and uh, it's very easy to apply. You're basically smearing it within the wound and trying to evenly kind of cover the wound uh, so it doesn't require an operating room or some extensive uh, team. So this uh, is able to be you know, used in many different locations and hopefully expand the access to uh, you know, areas that don't have access to fancy hospitals. And then it gets dressed, uh, and then it, it begins the, the closure process. So you've taken it, and it's just about a quarter size, something like that, made a paste out of it, and you're spreading it across these wounds that are actually can be larger than that. So it's sort of a thin paste on top of your wound. How does it grow from there? Correct. Yeah. And so um, what's really important for the technology is that this is the patient's own skin, so something we refer to as autologous. And because this is the patient cells, they're able to actually engraft within that wound bed um, and sort of form little islands of uh, new areas of skin growth and be able to really fill that wound more from an inside out manner. You can think of when you have a large wound, that wound is really trying to close from the outside in. And here we're sort of putting fresh troops, if you will, healthy uh, uh, cells and structure uh, components of the patient into that wound bed so that it's able to really uh, heal from all directions. And these little islands, do they eventually all grow together? Yeah, they uh, begin to expand and sort of coalesce. The skin cells are able to engraft within the wound bed and forming these little skin islands. And then they, with time, expand and coalesce and grow together in order to uh, heal the wound from that inside out. How long does it take? I got two how long questions here. How long between the time they take this quarter size uh, patch out of you and they send it to your labs and you might get it back in a paste to put on your wound? Correct. Yeah. So we're um, obviously there's shipping times, overnight shipping, you know, there and back. Uh, and then our manufacturing time is uh, about a day or so. And so oftentimes these providers can have the product back within, you know, uh, four days, roughly. And how long does it take for the skin to grow back? Uh, that's a great question. It often depends on the wound size. So a smaller wound um, often will close a little bit faster than a larger wound, uh, but generally within uh, two to eight weeks um, or potentially longer if it's a very large wound. 
I've been speaking with Dr. Nick Sopko, the Chief Scientific Officer of Polarity TE. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, an original approach in the fight on cancer. And Nate Pharma's Dr. Eric Vivier describes their effort and their first targets, non-small cell lung carcinoma and head and neck cancers. Stay with us. Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Nick Sopko, the Chief Scientific Officer of Polarity TE. Now you're going through trials with the FDA, one wound at a time you're picking, and you started with here diabetic foot ulcers. Why diabetic foot ulcers? Yeah, di- diabetic foot ulcers are a really severe uh, health uh, issue for a lot of individuals. You know, as we're all well aware, diabetes is uh, becoming more prevalent as the population gets older. And a large percent of, uh, of individuals who have diabetes will develop these ulcers. And these are uh, on the feet um, and uh, become very difficult to heal. And one of the risks is that uh, these uh, wounds can get infected and then can often result in uh, severe consequences such as amputation of that limb. And oftentimes individuals with these severe ulcers uh, have a reduced uh, life expectancy as well. Uh, because of all the complications that come about with that ulcer. Are you taking the severest of the severe for this trial? Yeah, so we're going for uh, definitely a more severe wound ulcer type, uh, one that hasn't been studied uh, very often uh, because of its severity. And specifically, we're looking at diabetic foot ulcers that have deep structures exposed. So these are wounds that go down to the bone, down to the muscle, down to the tendon. And when these deeper structures are exposed, that greatly increases the risk of infection and greatly increases the risk of these ulcers spreading. And there's uh, really not a lot of uh, products uh, that have gone after this wound type, in part because they're very challenging. Um, and so we see um, uh, you know, a, a great possibility there for uh, skin TE to, to aid. And we've treated these ulcers previously and have seen a lot of encouraging results. And quite honestly, skin TE often works best in these more challenging wound types. 
So how many people are in the study? How many people get the product and how many people don't? So the uh, study is uh, designed to enroll 100 patients, and that will be a split 50-50 between patients getting standard of care, sort of advanced wound dressings that are available now, um, uh, uh, compared to uh, patients getting skin to eat. And how long will it last? What are you checking for? We uh, follow the patients for six months, and um, what we're comparing is uh, the number of uh, patients uh, whose wounds closed between the two groups. Now, you have a second phase three trial that's coming up, and there's still some negotiations about it. What are the negotiations? Correct. So, uh, you know, for any, any you know, company or therapy that's going to be approved through the FDA, uh, you know, this is a sort of uh, a, a, a deep uh, discussion between uh, the agency and ourselves um, to be able to design that second study and understand you know, where they see us fitting in and how uh, we can best apply that technology. And so we're looking for that second phase three trial to be in another type of uh, severe uh, lower extremity wound ulcers, potentially something like venous leg ulcers, uh, which is another very common and severe wound type that uh, we would like to treat as well. Could they also be in the diabetic wound ulcer space? Potentially. Uh, something we've also thought about, or there's even more severe uh, diabetic foot ulcers that are actively infected, for example, uh, and that might be a possibility uh, for us to uh, evaluate those as well. Something we've also considered are pressure injuries, which are another uh, very severe ulcer type um, that have uh, you know, really a need for uh, additional treatments, and those are other wounds that we have on our radar. I think people in general have this sense that the FDA is there, you shoot documents in, they release uh, opinions or tell you, you know, it's like, you guys are working hand in glove here. You guys are, are all together, Polarity TE and the FDA. There's a lot of ongoing discussions and strategies about how best to proceed. I think that's a, a much better bigger and better picture of the FDA and, and, uh, and the biotech companies themselves. Yeah, the FDA obviously has a lot of experts on staff, and they work closely with us um, to uh, understand our product and make sure it's safe and effective. For example, when we're uh, going to be designing this third trial, we're presenting to them our prior clinical data from our prior trials, our, our current trial data, and uh, having them really understand where SkinTE fits in this treatment paradigm and uh, helping us design that second trial uh, to be able to target uh, patients who are really in need. Let me ask you, when the skin grows back, what does it look like? Yeah, so the, so the goal of our product is not only to, to close wounds, but to close wounds with skin that's similar to our native skin. Uh, and so what we're trying to get at is not only closure, but function. And uh, as we know, skin has several different functions, obviously being a barrier is, is one of the big ones that is obvious, but things like heat regulation, you know, we sweat, it releases oils so that the skin is flexible and we can bend. Um, and so uh, that's what we're, we're targeting. So the skin isn't going to be cosmetically perfect. Um, you know, it will look like it is a healed area of skin, but it will have that feel similar to, the, uh, uh, to our normal skin, that flexibility, that ability to sweat, and even sense, which oftentimes can be absent in scars uh, that occur from, from some of the other treatments out there. Now, what if you take a patch of skin that's hairy. Are you going to get hair on your uh, on your new recovered healed wound? Yeah. So we actually have what? seen that uh, <laughs> we do get hair growth. Yeah. And if you needed to sweat, then you you needed to take it from a part of your body that has sweat glands. You're kind of matching this up. 
Yeah, so uh, most of our skin, actually, other than really the palms of our hands and soles of our feet, generally will have hair follicles and sweat glands, obviously, in different concentrations. You know, there's a difference between our scalp and, uh, you know, our forearms. Uh, but generally, um, we do see hair on, on that regenerated skin. And, and that, for us, is actually very important um, because a lot of these uh, structures within the skin, such as hair follicles, sweat glands, and other components of the skin, is where uh, cells that have been shown to be very important for wound healing sort of live. And so for us, when we see those hair follicles, not only are we excited because there's hair and, you know, generally we all like the thought of being able to grow hair, um, but because, you know, what that's telling us is that these cells that are in our product are able to sort of recreate their homes. Um, and after they recreate their homes, they're able to go on and do that expansion and close the skin. So for us, we get very excited sort of from a scientific standpoint because that tells us that our product is really healing in a more native fashion than in just like a scarring uh, closure fashion. Well, you got me there because I was thinking, well, is it closed? Okay, fine. Everything's great. But it's difficult to tell if it's really fully healthy skin or it just happened to close up just now. So those are part of the indicators that you're looking at? Yep. Hair follicles are a very good sign that you have full thickness, you know, normal architecture of that, of that healed skin. And actually, you know, we've been very fortunate to have several patients who have been very generous enough and were very excited about their results that actually allowed uh, the, their uh, uh, physicians to take a little skin biopsy. And we we're able to put that under the microscope and look at that skin biopsy and see that it looks uh, pretty much the same as a normal piece of skin would. Well, that is that is great news. So let's all cross our fingers here that this uh, all turns out well. Uh, Dr. Sopko, I hope you'll come back and see us again. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Nick Sopko is the Chief Scientific Officer of Polarity TE. More information is available on the web at polaritythe.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Two scientists go to a meeting and find that what they're working on fits perfectly together to make an innovative approach in the fight against cancer. Today, they have multiple approaches with multiple drug candidates in multiple clinical trials. Dr. Eric Vivier is the senior vice president and chief scientific officer of Innate Pharma. Well, Eric, welcome to the program. Okay, I'm very glad to be here. Now, as you and I have discussed previously, there are five pillars or five avenues, if you prefer, for treating cancer. You know, the first, as we all know, surgery, remove it, perhaps radiation or radiotherapy, using high doses of radiation to kill cancer cells and shrink tumors. A third way is chemotherapy, using chemicals to keep, kill cancer cells, which has devastating side effects and may also kill healthy cells. And of course, one of these does not supplant the other. We bring them all together. But a fourth wave has been targeted therapy. Now, these are antibodies which specifically connect to specific cancer cells and only cancer cells to bring them either drugs or, or find the cell and target it in some way. And finally, most recently, we found new hope in what is called immunotherapy for cancer, or in other terms, immuno-oncology. What is that, and how is that different from the other uh, treatments that we have today? Well, it, it turns out that the immune system is protecting us against many different kinds of assaults. It can be from microbe infection, 
but it also can be from tumor because tumors can grow within our body. And we know from decades of immunology that the immune system can actually propose some, some defense mechanism against the growth of these tumors. But it took a long time to understand uh, the mechanism behind this. Actually, it took almost one century. And I don't want to tell you the entire story, but it's really started in New York City by the end of the 19th century. And, and uh, 100 years later, we understood that one of the reasons why the immune system was not as efficient as one could expect was that the tumor cells were sending inhibitory messages to the immune system. In a way, like, you know, like they were acting as brakes on the immune system and the immune system could no longer respond uh, in such an efficient way. And so we know uh, the molecular mechanism behind this. I don't want to go into the details, but there are inhibitory molecules, which are cell surface receptors, which decorate cells of the immune system, such as lymphocytes. And uh, the cells of the, on the tumor sites, uh, on the tumor beds, the tumor cells, express molecules that can act on these inhibitory molecules. And that's how they inhibit, abolish the function of the immune system. So immunotherapy really started by raising drugs, which are by themselves antibodies, by the way, therapeutic antibodies, that blocks this inhibitory interaction. So it's like really unleashing the cells of the immune system. This is why this, what these immunotherapy drugs are doing. And uh, it has been a wonderful discovery, first awarded by Nobel Prizes, but also leading to blockbusters in the pharmaceutical industry. In particular, uh, there are antibodies called anti-PDA1 or anti-PDL1 that leads to this unleashing of the immune system and thereby allowing the immune system to directly fight against the tumors. Now, they haven't been entirely successful in the sense that many people are not responding. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, uh, besides the fact that it's a true evolution and that these uh, immunotherapy treatments are leading to unprecedented success, it remains that most of the patients harbor or show primary or secondary resistance to these treatments, meaning that they are either non-responsive at all or that they started to be re responsive, but later on, uh, they were uh, resistant to these treatments. So these primary and secondary resistance are really the quest of the grail, so to speak, within our community right now. One needs to understand how come uh, these uh, events are happening. Now, let's talk a little about our immune system. Uh, we've heard we have an innate part of our immune system and an adaptive part. Let's talk about what that is and how that plays a role in all this. Yeah. When we speak about the immune system, generally one uses terms of war. Uh, and, and, and so to give you an idea of what these innate and adaptive uh, arms of the immune systems are, uh, let me maybe propose that the 
the innate immune system might be the first line of defense. And the adaptive immune system will be the second line of defense. So cells of the innate immune system are everywhere in the body. They can be in the skin, they can be in the gut, they can be anywhere. And they have to recognize changes. And these changes can be, for example, introduction of a virus, introduction of a bacteria, but maybe also the fact that these cells of the immune system are interacting with tumor cells, which are really different from normal cells. And when they can detect that, then they can start, they can initiate an immune response, which goes in, into two ways. The first way is to send directly some kind of a response against this aggression. Okay. To make a long story short, I can tell you right now that when NK cells, part of the innate immune system, recognize some tumor cells, they can detect them, then they're going to kill them. Okay. But at the same time, they can also, as any other cells of the innate immune system, they can secrete an array of molecules, soluble molecules that we call cytokines or chemokines, sorry for the jargon, uh, which will elicit the second wave or the second line of difference, which is the adaptive immune system. So it goes by numbers. So first line of defense, first protection mechanism against the aggression, and then second line of defense. So in a nutshell, we have these two lines of differences. And as we will discuss, I'm sure uh, we are particularly interested in trying to boost the anti-tumor function of the innate immune system. Now, for people saying, did he say NK, natural killer cells? Is that a scientific term? And it's like, yep, it is. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Actually, those guys have been discovered 50 years ago, 5-0, exactly by this um, feature, meaning that these cells are natural bone killers. They are able to detect tumor cells in particular. They can detect in general cells in distress, such as cells also infected by viruses, but let's focus on tumor cells. They can detect a variety of tumor cells, leukemia, lymphoma, solid tumors, and upon this recognition, they get activated and they can kill in return, they can kill these tumor cells, hence the name natural killer cells. Okay, so what we have here then is even though they're natural killer cells, the on the other side, the cancer cells are inhibiting them somehow or can inhibit them, stop them. And that's the basic problem you're addressing. Exactly. We have identified molecules which are expressed on NK cells, which actually inhibit the function of these cells. And the molecules that can activate these inhibitory molecules, these breaks, actually produced by tumor cells. So here again, this is exactly the same idea, is to unleash the anti-tumor function of NK cells so that when they interact with tumor cells, they can actually kill them more efficiently. So you have engineered many antibodies to do this, and right now you've got about a dozen that you're examining in various stages of clinical trials. In some of those, you're working with large pharmaceutical firms, for example, AstraZeneca, just as one example. And you've got a dozen engineered antibodies in your pipeline treatment now for cancer. I just want to pick up two. One is 
uh, an antibody, my favorite name ever, Mona Lisa Mob. <laughs> it's like, that's a great name. Exactly. That is a great name. Exactly. I don't know how you, I know. you never get a better name than that. You get the, the, I the know. biotech I agree. award I agree. on that. Um, and it's now in uh, already in phase three trials. What cancer is it trying to treat? And how does that trial work? What's the overview here? Yes, you're right, Moira. This is a very nice name for an antibody. So this antibody is a prototypical example of this unleashing antibody that I evoked earlier, meaning this antibody monalizumab is blocking an inhibitory receptor expressed on NK cells, but also on some T lymphocytes. And as a result of that, the cells are unleashed in their anti-tumor function. So it's in phase three in two kinds of tumor disease. The first one is non-small cell lung carcinoma, which is, as you know, a devastating disease. And the other one is head and neck cancers. So all the cancers of the head and the neck. And uh, so uh, in both conditions, monalizumab is uh, tested in combination with other molecules. And I don't want to be too granular here, but the reason is that the phase two clinical trials have been extremely exciting, and that's where that's why our partner AstraZeneca uh, launched them uh, launched uh, monalizumab in, in in phase three clinical trials in both indications. Do we have a sense when that one will be complete? No, <laughs> no, because it's going to be too long. What I can tell you, but it's going to be too long. Uh, one which just started is going to be for forty months. Forty four zero four. Four zero. So I don't want to mention that. You need patience, patience in this business. Absolutely. Now, now let's go to another one because we've been talking about the NK cells, and this is related to that. You're in phase one, that initial phase of the phase one, two, three uh, uh, effort, and uh, Anket. It's an Anket, A N K E T. That's right. Uh, sorry for the name, but I think. By the end of the day, I like yeah, it very what, much. Yeah, why don't you no, get no. a good name? No, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, I know you're me. capable. <laughs> so enquête means antibody-based NK cell engager therapeutics. What we're doing here is really not to unleash the NK cells by blocking inhibitory messages or inhibitory receptors, but it's rather to hyperactivate them they will kill more, they will produce more cytokines, uh, they will also proliferate. Uh, and the, at least in one of the versions of the enquête that we are generating right now. So this is uh, very exciting because it's not one molecule, but it's actually a new class of therapeutics. It's an entire platform when we can actually change the tumor antigen that we want to target selectively. So we are really in the context of precision medicine. Uh, but we can also change the way we are going to activate NK cells, and I don't want to go into the details. So here we are partnering for one of these enquête molecules with Sanofi in uh, acute myeloid leukemia, uh, which is a cancer of the blood, one of the cancers of the blood. And uh, so the patients are being included, as you mentioned, in a phase one clinical trial. I remind everybody that the phase one clinical trial is testing for safety of the molecule that you uh, inject into the patient. And so we are looking forward to have the result of the safety and moving forward to phase two for testing efficacy. 
So we would put this in the area of the immuno-oncology drugs, uh, but it is not something anyone's done before. No, it was not done before for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, you know, I really started to work on NKSS when I was at Harvard. This is back in the years. And, and uh, nobody really paid any attention really to these cells because the, the whole uh, field of space of immunology was focused, obsessed, I should say, uh, by T cells and B cells. And it makes a lot of sense because these cells are beautiful for a number of reasons, in particular the genetic mechanism be leading to their antigenic recognition. But there is this kind of a subset of lymphocytes that uh, nobody knew about. Uh, and, and to tell you the truth, I mean, they were first called non-T, non-B cells. So, you know, to be baptized by a double negation is <laughs> not a good start. It's not a jump you start. You are no one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You are not these ones. You are not the other ones either. So, so <laughs> Who cares? So, yes, so that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was not a jump start. But uh, anyway, so some of us really uh, got obsessed uh, to try to understand uh, what was these cells doing and how uh, they were doing what they did. And so we really participated to that. And uh, uh, this is one of the reasons uh, why nobody really took care of trying to harness the function of NK cells. But now that the first wave of immunotherapy uh, is ending, by the way, but it's just remarkable findings and discoveries that we evoked, in particular the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, such as anti-PD-1, anti-PDL-1, now, one needs to improve the efficacy of such immunotherapeutic treatment. And uh, so many of us are, are thinking of harnessing the function of the innate immune system, in particular in K cells. And as we speak, there is really, really is a hype around uh, the harnessing of NK cells in, in cancer uh, through academic groups, uh, but also uh, uh, companies. And Innate Pharma is one of these companies. And so, as we said, we are trying to harness the function of these cells by either unleashing them, by blocking inhibitory molecules, or by super activating them by acting on the activating receptors. And so uh, the clinical uh, trials will tell us. Now, there is so much science coming out of innate pharma, including yourself, who, who is a scientist. You've published so many articles in many of the top journals we could just name some, you know, Nature, Science, Cell, the Journal for Immunotherapy and Cancer, Cancer Discovery, and the list goes on. Uh, one of the things that is essential in this whole area is that we have to take science and move it into business. And and one could expect that you scientists would just keep doing science. And so I was very interested to find out, you know, how did you get from the science to doing a business? And I think you are the first biotech company ever to start on a subway in Paris. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that, that's a kind of a personal story. But uh, I don't know if it's going to be interesting for anybody, but it really started in the subway in Paris. Actually, with a friend of mine, Marc Bonneville, uh, we were uh, going to a meeting uh, somewhere in Paris and, and we discussed uh, in the subway about what we were doing and Marc and uh, his colleague Jean-Jacques Fournier at this period of time, this is back in the days, this is in 1996 or something, uh, 
they had discovered that one could activate a, a specific subset of lymphocytes. And Mark was so excited about this, which really was a, a strong discovery and, and published in science. And same time, you know, I was starting my lab back from Harvard uh, in France, and uh, uh, we had the privilege uh, to also uh, discover something, which was uh, the mode of action of these inhibitory molecules that are blocking the function of NK cells. And, you know, subway station from subway station, uh, we realized that it could be fun to join forces. And, you know, uh, he said, yes, so we should do it. And, you know, one way of joining forces is actually to create a company and to try to transform together uh, these findings of basic immunology into innovative treatments for patients. And he said, but what, what kind of patients? And he said, well, it has to be cancer uh, because cancer is unfortunately unmet medical need uh, in many instances. And we know that the gamma delta T cells and we know that the NK cells can actually recognize and eliminate a vast array of tumor cells. So we said, well, let's do it. And this is how we actually make started to make bridges between basic research and the industry uh, to try to help patients and, and providing them drugs that they didn't have. I guess I'm kind of wondering why your company isn't called the Metro Biopharma. I think that would have been... <laughs> it could, it could. <laughs> it could. All right, could. all right. Eric, thank you so much for coming in, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. It was, uh, it was wonderful to talk to you. Dr. Eric Vivier is the Senior Vice President and Chief Scientific Officer of Innate Pharma. More information is available on the web at innate-pharma.com. That's innate, I-N-N-A-T-E, dash pharma.com. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.